Again, good morning to you. It's good to be back with you here just a few moments later and to have had the opportunity to worship with you and sing with you and pray with you um, and meet many of you in this special series of lessons that you've put together and worked hard to prepare for this week. I want to encourage you to turn your Bibles to the book of Nehemiah, to the book of Nehemiah, and we will spend a lot of time there this morning as we study together regarding this theme. When you turn to the book of Nehemiah, one of the things that you need to keep in mind is that uh, the people of God have been through years and years of serving God as God's special nation, the people of Israel. They have been led out of the land of Egypt by the hand of Moses and Aaron. They have wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. They have then invaded and conquered the land of Israel. They have been led by people like Joshua and then followed up by um, rescuers, deliverers such as the judges. They've been led by kings whom they wanted uh, to rule over them. They've seen a split in their kingdom and the northern kingdom and southern kingdom uh, was created. They have seen their people and heard of the stories of their people being taken into captivity. First, the northern kingdom, and, and then the southern kingdom. And then, 70 years later, the people of God have been able to return to the land of Israel, God's promised land, and try to rebuild the temple and rebuild their opportunity to worship God together as God's special nation. But when we get to Nehemiah, the walls surrounding the capital city of God's people. The walls of Jerusalem have been torn down not to be rebuilt until a leader like Nehemiah comes onto the scene and takes charge. Though the people had returned to Jerusalem from captivity, the situation where we begin in Nehemiah was dire. It's dire because the protective stone walls surrounding the city were broken down. They've been burned with fire years and years ago. And the enemy nations were all around. And some of the enemies of God's people were even within the city. And the people were too broke and too bullied to rebuild. God's people, because of the broken down walls, they were vulnerable to attack. They were hanging on by a thread. And yet far away from the capital of Persia, there was a devout Jew who traveled to Jerusalem and who brought hope to the people. After surveying the city and its damages, Nehemiah, we read about calls together, the officials of the Jews. And in Nehemiah chapter 2 and verse 17, we find these words recorded. Nehemiah said to them, you see the distress that we are in. God's people are in a bad place right now. They are, as he puts it, in distress. He says how Jerusalem lies waste and its gates are burned with fire. Come and let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer be a reproach. And I told them of the hand of my God, which had been good upon me, and also of the king's words that he had spoken to me. And so the people said, let us rise up and build. And then they set their hands to this good work. Fifty-two days later, the wall was rebuilt. 
The people were on the path to not only the physical restoration of Jerusalem, but the spiritual restoration of the nation of Israel. God's people in that time, they owed a great debt of gratitude to Nehemiah for his leadership, for his insistence, for his indomitable will, which would not be shamed into quitting. And we can learn great leadership lessons from Nehemiah. When marriages are on the brink of failing, when homes are crumbling, when the nation seems to be tottering, and in many places where the church is struggling, we need leaders like Nehemiah in the home, in the nation, and in the church. We need men and women who, instead of giving up, encourage people to say together, let us rise up and let us build. So what does it take? That's what we want to think about here this morning. What does it take to have the will to rise up and to build? Well, we need no look no further than Nehemiah himself to learn some qualities that uh, we need to possess to turn what's broken into something that can be made whole again. I want you to consider seven things with you here this morning that Nehemiah's will to rise up and build led to. And the first of those things is this. Nehemiah's will to rise up and build started with a concern for others. Whatever is broken in your life, whether it be your marriage or your family, your home, whether it be a situation surrounding your workplace, whether it be a situation in the church, whatever it is broken, if it's going to be fixed, it starts really with the concern for that which is broken. Some seem so careless and apathetic concerning the walls that are crumbling in around them. Before we look at Nehemiah, keep your finger there and look with me at Proverbs chapter 24. And in Proverbs chapter 24, you read in verse 30, I went by the field of the lazy man and by the vineyard of the man devoid of understanding. And there it was, all overgrown with thorns. Its surface was covered with nettles. Its stone wall was broken down. When I saw it, I considered it well. I looked on it and received instruction. What did he learn? What he learned from the broken down walls of the lazy man, from the, 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 the field that was covered with thorns and nettles and weeds. He says, here's what I learned, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. So shall your poverty come like a prowler and your need like an armed man. What he learned is that if we don't do something, if we're not concerned about the walls that are crumbling around us, then nothing's going to get fixed and it's going to lead to worse problems. In the future. It's a lot like my three kids' bedrooms. Sometimes I walk into those bedrooms and I, and, and I think to myself, how can you stand this room looking like a tornado hit it? Uh, you've got to care enough, and that's one of my jobs as a parent, right? You've got to care enough about the problem to investigate it and help correct it. Nehemiah... When we read about him in chapter 1 and verse 2, right from the, the get-go of this work, we read that he was someone who compassionately cared enough to ask Hananiah and his visiting brethren from Judah about the situation in Jerusalem. If you're going to fix a problem, you've got to know that it exists. You've got to ask about it. You've got to be concerned about it. 
And here it says in verse 2 that Hanani, one of my brethren, came with men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity and concerning Jerusalem. If you're going to fix problems, you've got to ask about how those problems can be fixed, about where those problems are. There are two important questions that need to be asked when you sense trouble. Whether it be trouble in, in another member's life, someone in your family, uh, no matter who it is, two important questions. How are you doing? And that's what Nehemiah starts with. He asks Hananiah, he says, how are you doing? How are my brethren doing? How is the city? He said, I asked them concerning those things. He was interested enough, caring enough, compassionate enough to ask. Some people, it just doesn't seem like they care. You're hurting. People are depressed. They're discouraged. They're in a bad mood. They've got an attitude. And we don't take the time to ask. If you want to fix problems, you've got to, first of all, care enough to ask. How are you doing? The second question is this. When you realize that there's problems that exist, what can I do to help? How can I help? And Nehemiah, it starts with that. If there's a problem in the church, well, what's the problem? What can I do as a fellow member to help it? If there's a problem in our, in our home, there's a problem with your spouse, what's the problem? What can I do to help fix the problem? And, it's, and Nehemiah starts there. Second thing that Nehemiah does in order to rise up and build, he openly identifies the problems. He openly identifies the problems. Before you can repair anything, then you first need to come to the realization that it needs fixed. Stay in denial won't help. And I'll tell you, there are a lot of folks in denial when it comes to certain things. They've got marriage problems. Hey, look, if, you're, if your wife hasn't talked to you for several days, you need to quit being in denial. You've got a problem. Uh, you, you, you need to maybe figure out what the problem is. If your spouse won't talk to you, if you've got a fellow member of the church who won't talk to you, won't communicate with you, hasn't been here for weeks. Well, guess what? You've got a problem and you need to make sure that you find out what that problem is and identify that problem. If, if, if our nation has two, two sides of the aisle who won't talk to each other, then we need to talk about that problem. When there are people who won't stand up when other people are, are speaking and, 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 and the other party is standing up and they're sitting, you got a problem. We need to talk about our problems and communicate our problems and figure out where those problems exist. Get to the, really the foundational fundamental issues so that we can understand those problems. I know that when I study with someone, and when we sit down and we study the Bible... I can tell you whether or not I'm going to be able to make some progress studying with them, whether it's we're trying to help a marriage issue or a parenting issue or, or, or maybe just a personal issue. I can tell you whether or not we're going to make progress studying with those people based upon their attitude. If they're arrogant and prideful and pretend that they need no help, guess what? They're going to be very difficult to help. If they're acting like Adam and they're saying, I'm not the problem, she's the problem, then it's going to take probably a wake-up call before those people will turn around. And the same is true with any problem situation. You've got to see it, you've got to identify it, and you've got to admit it before you can fix it. 
Some people, they see the warning lights on the dashboard, they smell something funny, they see smoke rising from their hood, and they won't pull over until they can't drive the car anymore. And I'll tell you, that's too late. You've probably made the problem a lot worse. When you see the warning signs, you've got to pull over and quit pretending it's all a false alarm and start to get help. Take a look at what Nehemiah does here with his brethren. Verse 3, they said to me this. He asks about the problem. They tell him the problem. The survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in Jerusalem in great distress and reproach. They are stressed out. And he says other people look down upon them. And the wall of Jerusalem is also broken down and its gates are burned with fire. They quickly identify the problem. Nehemiah has the opportunity to actually go to Jerusalem in chapter 2. In Nehemiah, the first thing that he does before he meets with anybody, the first thing that he does is he surveys the city of Jerusalem himself, and he does that so that he can identify the problem. In chapter 2 and verse 12, he says, I arose in the night, I and a few men with me. I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem, nor was there any animal with me except the one on which I rode. And I went out by night through the valley gate to the serpent well, the refuse gate. I viewed the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down, its gates, which were burned with fire. He went and physically assessed the problem. I went to the fountain gate, to the king's pool. There was no room for the animal under me to pass, though. I went up in the night by the valley. I viewed the wall. I turned back. I entered by the valley gate. And you know what he does after that? Then he calls the people together and says, let's talk about the problem. And in verse 16, the officials did not know where I had gone. They did not know what I had done. And yet, I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, the others who did the work. And then, after he assesses the problem, I said to them, you see the distress that we are in. Jerusalem lies waste and its gates are burned with fire. Nehemiah identified the problem. Didn't try to pretend that there was no problem at all. If we're going to have the will to rise up and build it, you've got to have a concern for the problems. You've got to identify what those problems are and be open and transparent about those things. And thirdly, we find that Nehemiah is aided by the power of prayer. If we're going to have the will to rise up and build what truly belongs to God, and your marriage belongs to God, this church belongs to God, the nation truly is one nation under God, if we're going to rise up and build what truly belongs to God, then you need to turn to God for strength. And Nehemiah does just that. It is a vain and a foolish pride which causes us to think that we can fix life and its problems on our own. When my drain needs fixed, a lot of times I call the plumber. I call the electrician when we have electrical issues. We call our attorney when we have legal issues. Why do we do that? Because they often know more about how to fix the situation than we do. We have a creator who knows far more than we, who sees the future before we do. Why do we not pray and seek out his wisdom and his help in the midst of trials? The first century church was a praying church. Whenever there was a problem, the people were praying. And if we seek to restore New Testament Christianity, then there needs to be a complete reliance upon prayer that should be a part of that restoration movement. Nehemiah, we read here in Scripture, humbled himself, confessed, and prayed for God to provide the open door to fix what he knew was in disrepair. 
In chapter 1, when he hears that there's a problem in verse 4, it says, When I heard these words, I sat down and wept, and I mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And then you read about his prayer in verses 5 through 11. He confesses his sins, and yet he speaks to God of God's promises for his special nation. And he asks God in verse 11, he says, Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name and let your servant prosper this day, I pray, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Nehemiah prayed for deliverance, for an opportunity, for an open door. And Nehemiah received that opportunity. Look at some New Testament passages with me. Let's look at what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 21. When he speaks to some of his disciples, he says in Matthew chapter 21, and you read verses 21 and 22 there. It says, Assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but also if you say to this mountain, be removed and cast into the sea, it will be done. And whatever things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. Jesus calls upon his followers to be people of confident prayer. Not double-minded people, as James refers to them, but be confident in prayer, the mountains that exist in our lives, the hurdles that we must face, the obstacles we must overcome. We need to pray with confidence that God can do something about the hurdles and the obstacles. Hebrews chapter four and verse 15. Read about that Hebrew writer saying we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but he was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. So referring to Jesus. And it's saying that just like Jesus faced trials and temptation when he was here in this life, he understands the trials and temptations that you face. And therefore, verse 16 says, let us come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. When there are needs that exist in our lives, when we are in need of grace, it says, come to Jesus and pray through Jesus. And your prayers can be answered. Look in 1 Peter 5 at one more passage. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 and 7, it connects prayer to humility. It says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Quit thinking that you can solve all of life's problems on your own without the help of the mighty hand of God. Often, Nehemiah refers to the hand of God, the providence of God that was upon him. He recognized that when all of these things occurred so the wall could be rebuilt, it was because of God's providence, His might, His power overseeing the entire event. And Peter says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon Him, for He cares for you. If we're going to have the will to rise up and build, then we need to have the humility to get down on our knees and first pray for God's strength through the trials. Well, after Nehemiah prays, I want to also say this. Nehemiah prays and God provides and Nehemiah seized the providential opportunities. In chapter 2, notice what happens after Nehemiah prays a few days later. It says in chapter 2, verse 1, that Nehemiah had never been sat in the presence of the king before. Nehemiah's job was to be the king's cupbearer. This was an important job. You needed a trustworthy person to be the cupbearer. After all, 
one of the most common ways to assassinate a king would be to poison his drink. And so you needed somebody you trusted giving him the drink every day. And so it was, it was a source of protection. It was a source, a place of trust that Nehemiah had with the king, though it may have seemed, seemed like a small job. It was a job that required professionalism. If you weren't professional in the presence of the king, there could be very severe consequences for you. And so Nehemiah says, I had never been sad in his presence. He was letting his emotions, he was wearing his emotions on his sleeve. And in verse 2, the king said to me, why is your face sad since you are not sick? This is nothing but sorrow of heart. And Nehemiah says, I became dreadfully afraid. Because the king noticed and the king could have done something about it. And so I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies waste and its gates are burned with fire? The king said to me, well, what do you request? Look, that's the open door right there. Just that short sentence. What do you request? Those four words that the king asked. Nehemiah knows that's my opportunity. I had prayed to God days before. God be attentive to my prayer. Let me find mercy in the face of the king whom I serve. I know that the king can help here on earth with this situation. So give me an opportunity. And here he sees it. And that's why it says, so I prayed to the God of heaven. I can't imagine that this was... In a prayer that he verbalized outwardly. I think it was a prayer that Nehemiah prayed inwardly. Asking God, realizing and thanking God that here is the opportunity I asked you for. I've just received it. Now please bless it. And in verse 5 he says, I said to the king, if it pleases the king, if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. And of course, the king grants his request. You know, if Nehemiah right then, right there, when he had the opportunity, had not spoken up and asked the king for his favor, then there's a very good chance the opportunity would have been gone. The reason why I say this, the reason why I think it's important is so many times I think we miss out on opportunities because we're in such a rush. People are talking to you about marriage problems. Have you been praying for open doors? And yet they're talking to you about marriage problems and conflict that exists in their marriage. And here's your opportunity to talk to people about Jesus and about how Jesus can help in their marriage and in their life. And sometimes we miss out on those opportunities. You have people who walk in the doors of the church building and we expect, well, we'll get around to them the second or the third time. Maybe when they come again, maybe that's when we'll reach out to them and try to talk to them about the Lord. And guess what? You don't get a second or third time sometimes. Sometimes the first time is the only chance you get to introduce yourself and to talk to somebody and to open the door of the Lord to them. We need to seize our providential opportunities. There have been so many times that I have prayed and very soon after I pray for an open door, for an opportunity, you'll get a phone call. You'll be engaged in a conversation. It may be with a stranger that you've never even met. And God's providing you with that opportunity. And when that opportunity comes, we need to walk through the open doors. Nehemiah seized the opportunities. If we will build, then we need to have the presence of mind like Nehemiah to seize the opportunities. Listen, your children. Our opportunities. 
And I know Jay's going to talk about that later, so I'm not going to step on his sermon too much. But your children are opportunities. I have so many people who, who tell me now that their children are grown, it goes by so fast, Josh. And I've got two teenagers in my house now. And I'll tell you, it's gone by really fast. Um, you've heard, heard the phrase maybe that the, um, the days are long, but the years are short. And that's how it feels raising your kids. You only get those opportunities with your kids for so long, and then they're on their own. Seize those opportunities to share the Lord and to make the Lord a priority in their lives. Colossians chapter 4 and verse 3, you find Paul using that open door phrase. He uses it several times, but just notice this one passage. It says, continue earnestly in prayer. Be vigilant in it with thanksgiving. And meanwhile, pray for us, he says, that God would open to us a door for the word. To speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in chains. If we're going to rise up and build, we need to be praying for opportunities. And when those opportunities are placed in front of us, like Paul, you need to walk through those open doors. Seize the opportunities. A third, uh, actually this would be a fifth thing. I don't count well, that's why I'm not a math teacher. Um, but the fifth thing here that we want to note is that Nehemiah's will to rise up and build included others in the work. And I think that's an, an important point not to be neglected here. You can't do God's work without God, so pray. And you can't do God's work without God's people. So include one another in the work that needs to be done. Remember when Moses, he was overburdened with judging between the people of Israel all day long in the Old Testament. His father-in-law, Jethro, gave him some priceless advice. And you know, every once in a while, your in-laws can give you some good advice. Jethro gives him some good advice. And he tells him, you need to appoint judges in Israel who can help you with your work because you're going to get worn out and you're going to get burnt out. Good churches... I want to take that principle. I want to apply it to good churches. Good churches are not preacher-centric. And they're not even elder-centric. Good churches balance out the workload. Everybody is involved in the work or your preachers get burnt out and your elders get burnt out. Good families don't make mom do all the housework. Mom delegates Housework to the rest of the family and the workload is shared. Good government is not a dictatorship. It can be successful when all of its leaders and its citizenry are actively involved in serving for the good of country. And good leadership then includes others in fixing the problem. So the burden is not just placed in a minority group in the church. And I'll tell you, this is such a common problem in churches. That a small percentage of the membership does a majority of the church's work. Nehemiah, he sees the problem, but then he includes everybody who's in Jerusalem so they can be a part of the work in fixing the problem too. If we've got the will to rise up and build, let's do it together. Nehemiah was quick to include others. Look at verse 17. Then I said to them, he sees the problem. And it takes sometimes a leader seeing the problem, but then saying, let's all work together to fix it. And he says, let us build. Come and let us, plural, together, 
build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer be a reproach. Nehemiah couldn't have built that wall by himself in 52 days, but with the help of other people, he could. I love Nehemiah chapter 3, actually. It may seem like a list of names to many of you. and In a lot of ways, it is. But who those people are is so important. You've got the high priest. You've got the priest. You've got the nobles, the officials. You've got rich people, poor people. You've got men and women, people who live all around the city. And they're all involved in chapter 3 in building up the wall. That's how the church should work, too. You've got people from all kinds of backgrounds, men, women, uh, people who are old and people who are young, people who are working people, people who are retired people, people from all kinds of backgrounds, and they're all involved in the building up of the church. If you've got the will to rise up and build, I'll tell you, it's, it's not going to be done by just hiring a preacher to do everybody else's work. Everybody has to be involved In the work of the church. It's not to be done by just a couple of elders. Everybody needs to find their role. And be involved in the work of the church. Nehemiah included other people. Nehemiah also overcame the opposition. When you're trying to build. Guess what? There's going to be haters. There's going to be people who try to tear down what you're trying to do. When you're living for God. And when you're striving to do what God calls you to do. And that was the case from the very get-go with Nehemiah. You read Nehemiah 2 and verse 19. You've got Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite, and Geshem the Arab. Those are people from areas all around Jerusalem. And all three of those people are a thorn in Nehemiah's side from the very start. Notice what they did. They laughed at us. They despised us. And they said, what is this thing that you're doing? Will you rebel against the king? They apparently didn't know what they were talking about. Because it was the king who sent Nehemiah down there to do the job. Nehemiah knew he had the backing of the king. And most importantly, he had the backing of God. And so he didn't let the the haters discourage him. I answered them and I said, the God of heaven himself will prosper us. And therefore, we, his servants, will arise and build, but you have no heritage or right or memorial in Jerusalem. Nehemiah was tough. You go ahead and keep on hating. I'm going to go ahead and keep on doing what the God of heaven calls me to do. You've got to be willing to overcome the opposition if you're going to have the will to rise up and build. There are going to be people who doubt you, who try to discourage you, who mock you when you try to live as a Christian individually. They might mock the the work that you're trying to do as a church and what you focus on as a church. But keep on doing what God calls you to do and let God bless the work. In Nehemiah 4, it says that they became furious and indignant. It says that they mocked the Jews. They tried all kinds of ways to mess with their heads. Laughter, mockery, anger, threats. Nehemiah keeps on building. It says in verse 3 that Tobiah the Ammonites said, Whatever they build, if a fox goes upon it, he will break down their stone wall. I love near the end of Nehemiah when they have the celebration after rebuilding the wall. Remember what they did? They stood up on the wall themselves and marched on it. They're making the point. This isn't a fox up here. These are a bunch of big grown men. We can stand up on the wall and the wall has been secured. And so your mockery is now being mocked by the fact that we're standing 
on this wall ourselves. We have done what you said we could not do. I have a sermon that I preach sometimes. It's, it's called The Mountains and the Valleys of Life. And one of the points that I make is almost every time that you, you face a mountaintop of life, you know, a, a, a moment of success and achievement. And right here, I think Nehemiah is there. He's got the king who sent him back home with money to do the work of rebuilding the wall. He's got everybody's bought into the system. All these people are in support of his work. And and then right after that, right when he's feeling like, yes, God's answering my prayers. The people are on board. We're ready to get to work. Then he has these people trying to tear it down. Then there's kind of this valley. But you see that all throughout scripture. You see it with Jesus after he was baptized. Jesus after he was baptized. Matthew chapter 3, 16 and 17. You've got the father up above saying this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The spirits descending like a dove. What an awesome experience that must have been. What a confidence building moment. And yet in chapter 4 you have the temptation of Jesus. Where Jesus hasn't eaten for 40 days and now the Satan is tempting him. Faces this mountaintop and then he goes down to this valley. Here's Nehemiah. Faces the mountaintop. Listen, every time you you find success, there are going to be people who follow that success by trying to tear it down. So keep on doing what's right. Face the persecution and the trials and be consistent in serving the Lord. Nehemiah's task began and ended with opposition, but he never allowed it to stop him from doing what God called him to do. 2 Timothy 3 and verse 12, Paul writes to Timothy. He he writes to someone who is striving to be an evangelist, who is probably going to find success in preaching the gospel to folks who had never heard of Jesus. And yet, Paul very well knew from his own success that sometimes that brings envy and hatred and opposition. And so he reminds Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, And in verse 12, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Sometimes it'll be from your own family. Sometimes it'll be from your friends who see that you're trying to live for the Lord and want to mock it. Sometimes it's from the world outside and sometimes it's even from those within. But the scriptures make it very clear to us that we need to be persistent and overcome that opposition and continue in doing the good God calls us to do. And that leads us to our last point here concerning Nehemiah. Nehemiah's will to rise up and build led to him enduring to the finish. Enduring to the finish. Look at verse 15 of Nehemiah chapter 6 and notice what happens. So the wall was finished. I mean, these people write letters to the king. They try to litigate. They threaten. They mock. They despise. Nehemiah gets to the point where he's got to build the wall and he's got a sword in one hand and it says a brick in another because of the opposition. And yet he endures and the wall was finished on the 25th day of Elul in 52 days. Quitting early usually does not help build But it leads to delays and it leads to failures. If we're going to really succeed as a church and as a people of God, we need finishers. We need finishers. The word perseverance is used often in scriptures. It's also the word that's translated sometimes endurance. 
Sometimes it's translated steadfastness. The very idea behind that word is that we see things through until the end. We finish what we start. You become a Christian, don't quit in the middle of your life before you get to the end. Finish what you start. You begin a marriage and you make a covenant between one another, don't quit in the middle of that. Finish what you start. You make the decision to have children, raise those children in the Lord and continue to raise and nurture them and bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Finish what you start. You become a a member of a congregation. You're going to work together with that congregation to try to uh, spread the word of God in your community, to strengthen one another. Stay dedicated and committed to those brothers and sisters and, and, and finish what you start. Quitters discourage. Quitters hurt the work. People who stick with it and are loyal and are committed strengthen the work. There is shame and there's guilt when we quit on a team, on a marriage, on a family, on a church. It feels good to endure and to say we did what we could. My daughter Zoe, who's out there, last year she she signed up to run cross country at her school. And... A lot of her friends, they were passing around a sheet in class. And a lot of her friends were signing the sheet, saying they were going to run cross-country. And so she signed her name to it. Well, she shows up and she, she comes to cross-country practice only to realize that a lot of her friends signed that sheet, but, but they really didn't want to do it. And she said, so I think I'm going to quit too. And Mom and Dad, we have a rule in our house. You sign up to do something, you finish it. You sign up to run cross-country, you run cross-country. That season. And so she ran begrudgingly cross country that season. I'm not sure if she'll ever run it again, but she did it that season. I think it's important. I think the Bible teaches important to finish what you start. Nehemiah and his band of brethren, they continue to build until the wall is built. 52 days later, the task is accomplished. Look with me at a New Testament passage. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 39. The book of Hebrews, chapter 8 says the main point of Hebrews is that we have a high priest such as Jesus. But you know, one of the, the big points of Hebrews is this. The writer of Hebrews is, is writing to a people who are discouraged. Many of them have become Christians and now they are being persecuted by their family, by their countrymen, by those that they once shared a a national relationship and kinship with. And they are discouraged. And being discouraged, many of them are thinking about quitting. That's why the whole point of the book of Hebrews is that you've got a better high priest. You're under a better covenant. Um, you, You... don't go back to that old covenant. Don't go back to, to what you previous were following. Follow Jesus. But in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 39, a phrase that you see quite often in almost every chapter is he's encouraged them, don't quit. Don't give up. Don't go backwards. Verse 39 says this. We are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. Don't draw back. Be a finisher. If you've got the will to rise up and build, don't just start the job. Finish the job. Revelation 2.10 says, be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. Now think about all of these principles that we see here exhibited in the life of Nehemiah. It starts with a concern for others. 
He openly identifies the problems. He's aided by the power of prayer. He seizes providential opportunities. He includes other people in the work. He overcomes the opposition. He endures to the finish. What if we applied these principles to the problems that we face in our homes? And I'm sure we're going to talk about those more this week. What if we apply these principles to the problems that we see in the nation? What if we applied these principles to the problems that we see in the church? Will we not be better off as a people if we had the resolve and the will to follow these principles as we try to lead and change things for the good? You know, I told you all in the first lesson, I just, I just moved here from Indiana. Lived in Indiana my whole life. I'm 38 years old and um, I've been in Ohio for, for four months now. And... One of the philosophies that I have in my life, I can't fix every single problem that exists in the world. I know that. I'm one person. And maybe you think that too. This is just, I'm one person. What can I do? I, I can't fix you know, every single problem that exists in a church. I can't certainly fix every single problem that exists in a nation. I may not even be able to fix every single problem that exists in my own home. But one thing that I make it a goal to do, just... Personally, is that I hope that after I, after I leave a place, leave a city, leave a job, leave a, leave a church since I've moved from Indiana to here, when my, my kids are grown, I hope that I can say this. I hope that I've left things better when I finish than when I started. And I hope that because... Of my influence, even though I may not be able to fix everything, I hope that I'm able to leave things better. I hope that my wife's a better person for having been with me later than when we started. I hope my kids can say that because I had you, Dad, I'm better because you've raised me than, than when they started. <laughs> I hope that I can leave churches and say that I left things in a better situation than when I started. I hope that in every interaction, every friendship I have, that I leave you a stronger person when we're finished and we have to go our separate ways at some point in time than when we started. And I think that was very much the philosophy that Nehemiah had. Nehemiah, his last written words are these. Remember me, oh my God, for good. And he says it several times. Lord, just remember me. You know, Nehemiah has to go back to the city of Jerusalem and he finds that some of the things that he corrected, they were going back into their old ways. He did what he could. He tried as much as he tried different avenues, different, different styles of leadership in order to fix some of those problems. But ultimately, here's all you can do. All you can do is say, Lord, I've tried to do as much as I can do. Please remember me for trying to do good. Nehemiah never fixed every problem in Israel. More problems would arise over time. But one thing is for sure, he left Jerusalem better. Than when he found it. What about you in this life? Are you leaving things better than when you found it? That's what we want to encourage you to do. That's what this week, I think the lessons are focused on encouraging you to do. To leave your family better this afternoon than when you, than when you first started. To build up other people. To build zeal that's, that bleeds over into the church. And you can do that through Jesus Christ. We want to conclude with an invitation. And the invitation of Jesus Christ is yours. It's not an invitation where we're encouraging you just to follow Nehemiah. We want you to follow a leader 
who was far greater than Nehemiah, Jesus Christ, the Son of God himself. Jesus Christ came to rebuild what was broken. Rebuild not what was broken when it comes to walls and structures, but we come to rebuild what was broken in your heart and in your life. You see, we've all sinned and we've fallen short of the glory of God. Because of that, there's been a separation between God and man. Our sins have separated us from God. And Jesus Christ came and gave his life, sacrificed himself on a cross so that those sins could be forgiven, so that you could be washed by the blood of Jesus Christ, so that you could be reconciled to God. You who were once enemies, whose relationship was once broken, who lacked peace, you were not in a secure situation. Jesus came so that you could have peace, so that you could have security, so that you could have strength in God. An opportunity, if you'll believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died on the cross, who proved that he was our Lord and our Savior, when he was raised from the dead, if you'll believe, if you'll confess, if you'll turn from your sins, if you'll be baptized into Jesus Christ, then you can have peace with God here this morning. And that's what we want for you. We want you to begin your journey if you haven't begun it. And having begun your journey in Jesus Christ, we pray that you will continue to finish so that you can be with Jesus Christ for all of eternity. If you're subject to invitation here this morning, we invite you Come, obey the gospel, and you can do so. Why do we stand and what we sing?